This episode of For Real is brought to you by Book Riot's TBR, the subscription service offering reading recommendations personalized to your reading life. Looking for the perfect gift for the book lovers in your life this holiday season? Give the gift of TBR, Book Riot's subscription service offering tailored book recommendations as diverse and interesting as readers are. Choose from plans that allow your loved ones to receive hardcover books in the mail or recommendations by email as a one-time gift or year-long subscription and sit back while our bibliologists do the rest. When your recipient redeems their gift, they'll complete a profile to tell TBR about their reading preferences and what they're looking for, and they can even connect their Goodreads account. Then we'll match them up with a bibliologist who will handpick recommendations just for them. Gifts start at just $16, so there's an option for every budget. TBR is produced in partnership with Print, a bookstore in Portland, Maine, so when you treat someone's shelf, you're supporting an indie too. Visit mytbr.co slash gift to sign up today and give the bookish folks in your life a personalized bookish experience they can enjoy without leaving their home. That's mytbr.co slash gift. Welcome to For Real, a bi-weekly nonfiction books podcast that puts the spotlight on books that tell it like it is, or at least try to. We'll cover new releases, backlist finds, and more. For Real is a Book Riot podcast and is hosted by me, Kim Ukara, and fellow rioter Alice Burton. Recording this week's episode on Saturday, November 7th. Hello, Alice. How are you? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I feel like I am probably how most people are right now. How are you? Indeed. Uh, this week feels like it has been a month long and a year in which many weeks have felt like they have been very long. You know, I am tired and anxious, but <laughs> we persist. As Kim said, we're recording this on Saturday. Uh, I feel like the day things are happening is like extra important this week. It just is. being like, this is the information that we have. The information we have is that the presidential election has not been decided. One hopes that when this comes out on Tuesday, it will be, and we can all just somehow go back to, I was going to say our daily lives, but our daily lives are also chaotic and weird. Yeah, there's lots of things happening. And I don't know that anything gets substantially easier. You know, I get like you said, everything's just kind of hard right now. And I, well, no, I don't even want to go down the road. Yeah, so November is, uh, it's been quite a tumultuous month, and it is not even halfway done. So we'll see how the rest of it goes. (laughs) Happy November to you all. Indeed, that is correct. Uh, Before we jump into the episode, we want to just remind you that we're going to be doing a holiday gifting episode that'll come out ahead of Black Friday. So if you are looking for nonfiction recommendations for someone in your life, or perhaps you would like nonfiction recommendations for yourself so that you can put them on your own holiday gifting lists, um, we are excited to give book recommendations. That's like my favorite thing about being a book person is telling people about books to read. So if you have, um, if you would like to get some book recommendations, you can email them to us by Friday, November 13th, and I'll be in our episode that comes out the week of Thanksgiving. So you can email forreal at bookriot.com by Friday, November 13th, and we will include your request in our episode and give you some book recommendations. 
Yeah, so that's the Friday of um, the week that this episode comes out. So basically, yes. the second you hear this, just drop us an email at a for real at bookriot.com. Uh, and with that, let's talk about our first sponsor. It is Loved and Wanted by Krista Paravani from Henry Holt and Company. Loved and Wanted is the passionate story of a woman's love for her children and a poignant and bracing look at the difficult choices women in America are forced to make every day in a nation where policies and a culture war on women leave them without sufficient agency over their bodies, their future, and even their hopes for their children's lives. This has been described by Lisa Tadeo as a haunting, wild, and quiet at once, a shimmering look at motherhood in all its gothic pain and glory. I could not stop reading. Uh, so again, that is Loved and Wanted by Krista Paravani, and thank you for sponsoring. Yeah, I have that book on my, my list to potentially read and talk about, so I'm very excited about it. All right, so uh, we will kick off the episode by talking uh, about nonfiction in the news. And uh, this week, we don't have any specific news articles to point to. It's more just two um, nonfiction-related things related to the election um, that I thought were kind of interesting. So uh, the first person I wanted to talk about is Stacey Abrams, who is an author and uh, political activist in Georgia. So Stacey Abrams uh, lost the race for governor in Georgia in 2018. There are allegations of voter suppression and all sorts of things going on. And so she, uh, after losing, launched Fair Fight Action, which is an organization to address voter suppression. And so working with other activists in Georgia, other um, Democratic activists primarily, she helped to register more than 800,000 new voters in Georgia, which may in fact be responsible for potentially flipping Georgia from Republican to Democratic in this year's presidential election. So I just thought that was a really cool story. Um, um, Stacey Abrams is also an author. She writes for romance novels under a pseudonym, Selena Montgomery, but she's also written two nonfiction books. The first one is called Minority Leader, How to Lead from the Outside and Make Real Change. And the second one, which came out, I think in June of this year, is Our Time is Now, Power, Purpose, and the Vice for a Fair America. So uh, kudos to Stacey Abrams and uh, definitely pick up her books. I just really love how Stacey Abrams is not only a romance author, but also is such a sci-fi nerd. And like, there's so many things that just make her such a delightful person. <laughs> like, she was talking, they were asking about like, oh, what were you doing? Like, I think it was the morning after the election or something. And she was like, or maybe it was the day of whatever. She was like, oh, I was watching Supernatural, which <laughs> she was like, which, which is a show that prompts some really interesting theological questions. And I was like, no, it doesn't, Stacey Abrams. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I watched a video on Instagram of her this morning, and she was just talking like, it's just so inspiring. And I'm so grateful for all the work that she did. So yeah, that's really awesome. Um, the second uh, nonfiction author that has an election-related story this year is a woman called Sarah McBride. Uh, she was elected in Delaware as the country's first transgender state senator um, by being elected as state senator in Delaware. She's a former spokesperson for the Human Rights Campaign. She was the first transgender person to speak at a major party convention when she spoke at the Democratic Convention in 2016. And she was the first out transgender White House staff person when she interned for President Obama. Uh, and she is the author of a memoir that I read when the year it came out. I want to say it was 2018, but I didn't write that down. So my bad. But the memoir is called Tomorrow Will Be Different, Love, Loss, and the Fight for Trans Equality. And I loved it. It was such a great book. And she is just such an open and interesting person. And I'm so excited for her to be elected to the Delaware Senate. I think that's amazing. So I wanted to be sure to call that one out, too. Um, you're right. It came out in 2018. Yeah, there's lots of, I don't know, there's lots of really, I guess, like, hopeful mm -hmm. and inspiring news coming from 
all that's going on right now, which is nice in a year of just almost literal garbage. So yeah, that's been great. Yeah, I saw a lot of um, posts about LGBTQ plus people winning local races and state and uh, state house and senate races. So I think that's really great as well that we're seeing more of that even in a year when things are otherwise difficult. So very cool. All right. So with those two kudos out of the way, we're going to move into new nonfiction, which is nonfiction coming out recently or soon that we are excited to share with you because we think it sounds awesome. Uh, And Alice is up first. Yeah, um, I'm very excited about this book. It's coming out from Grand Central Publishing on Mm -hmm. Tuesday. So the day that this comes out, it is We Keep the Dead Close, A Murder at Harvard and a Half Century of Silence by Becky Cooper. Gosh, how do I even – so there's a blurb on the front of this by Patrick Radden O'Keefe who wrote mm. We Say Nothing about the IRA in Northern Ireland and a murder that happened there. And I, I felt like that blurb was really appropriate because this book has a very similar vibe to what was go- – like what happens in that in that it's like this one person kind of doing a very deep, deep investigative journalism on a very specific group of people. So what We Keep the Dead Close is about is in 1969 on the uh, Harvard campus in an apartment building, a graduate student in the um, anthropology school was found murdered in her apartment. And immediately there were kind of rumors that this was done by a professor – at Harvard, who was uh, basically her professor for like anthropology, archaeology. But he was never arrested. And he was still teaching there in 2010, which is when the author was at Harvard. So basically, the author, Becky Cooper, is like at, you know, at school, and she's chatting with some people. And they're like, Oh, did you hear about, you know, in the 60s, this you know student was murdered, and the professor is like still teaching now he has tenure. And she was like, what? what? <laughs> right, right. I mean, quite rightly. And basically, It's kind of what we talked about the other week where if you uh, sometimes just like one thing that you watch for like, like, let's say 30 seconds will like spur you down this like either rabbit hole of research or just find like it's like a new thing you're suddenly interested in because you just connect with it in like this one instant. And that seems to be what happened with Becky Cooper, where she found herself relating very hard to this woman who was murdered, Jane Britton. And basically went on a quest to find out what happened. So this book is, it alternates between telling the story of what was happening in 1969 when the body was found and, you know, people started being interviewed and what the police department did. And then also Becky in the 2010s getting interested in the case, auditing a class done by this professor who was suspected, and then kind of following her investigation in in current times. And it's It's so well done and it's so fascinating and it's been such a uh, distraction from everything happening right now. I have really, really appreciated it. It also talks about basically um, the culture of Harvard, which I found fascinating, and how they kind of view themselves as being older than America, which was a really striking You know, way of um, of presenting their their kind of, I guess, summing up their their own opinion of themselves, and uh, basically saying why the case hadn't been solved as of you know like forty years at the time past it had been done, and it's just it's really really good. I I just recommend it if you are at all interested in true crime, investigative. I'm gonna say journalism, and if you liked you know again books like We Say Nothing. So again, that is We Keep the Dead Close, A Murder at Harvard, and A Half Century of Silence by Becky Cooper. 
That sounds so good. We were talking like right before the episode. So I was like, Alice, how much did you like this book? And you said a lot. And I was like, all right, I'm going to pre-order it right now because I'm so excited to read it. So yeah, sounds fascinating. And I appreciate hearing that it's a good distraction because that is what I feel like I'm looking for all the time now. Yeah, 100%. And it's just so well done that you also feel like you can relax into the book. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. You're not just like, oh, they're like, is this okay? I don't know. Excellent. All right. So my first pick for this week is called Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Band by Emmanuel Acho. And this is, um, I'm going to quote from the book jacket because I think it's really great, an urgent primer on race and racism from the host of the viral hit video series, Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man. So the author is the son of Nigerian immigrants. He grew up in a suburb of Dallas. He attended mostly white private schools, lived in a white upper class suburban neighborhood. Um, He was a football player, so he eventually made it to the NFL where he played as a linebacker for the Cleveland Browns and the Philadelphia Eagles. And that all is important because it kind of gives context for his story and his perspective and how he is approaching kind of this book and also his YouTube series. So in 2020, he launched a YouTube series called Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man, where he sits down and he interviews people on issues of race in the United States. So uh, there was an episode where he interviewed a bunch of white police officers. Um, There's one where he interviewed Roger Goodell, who's the um, head of the NFL. And he just interviews a lot of different people talking about these questions. And so the book is part memoir where he kind of talks about his experiences being a son of immigrants in a suburb of Dallas, but how he grew up in a lot of white communities and then moved to the NFL where a vast majority of players are black and kind of how he has moved between those different communities and how they have informed his uh, ideas about race and how to have conversations with people who are not like you. And so um, the book is, like I said, part memoir and then part guide to having difficult conversations around race with people that you are close to. So every chapter starts out with a question that he has been asked kind of via the show, like questions about like, should you teach your kids not to see color? What is white privilege? And is it just for wealthy white people? Um, How can white people help push forward change as related to race? And like lots more like really difficult questions like that. And so he in each chapter walks through kind of a personal experience related to the question, backs up and gives you kind of a history of like why we're even talking about this right now. So the first chapter is about what should we call black people? And he talks about like the history of different terms and African-American versus black and how that conversation has changed over time. And then after the history, he gives you thoughts on how to get uncomfortable with that conversation when you're kind of having it internally and when you're having a conversation about that issue with others, and then an action that you can take related to it. So every chapter kind of has that nice structure, which I think is really helpful because it sort of humanizes the issue. It gives you some context. And then it says, here's how you can deal with this yourself, or you can try to start dealing with it yourself. And so basically the idea I think what I like about it is that although the questions feel like they're sort of on the basic side, it feels like it's a book that knows it's writing primarily to a white audience. And so that's the approach he's taking. And so um, I think it, if you're someone who is really deeply familiar with a lot of these issues, it's either you know, going to be too simple for you or it might be a way of trying to like help you have those conversations with people in your life who haven't thought about it as much and sort of it gives it sort of a nice basic primer on a lot of this stuff. And he, the whole approach of the book is that we can't move people until we start acknowledging that these questions exist and start to try to answer them, um, which I think is true in a lot of cases, especially given like what we're seeing with election results. So, and then he also in the book has a lot of sources and other places where you can look to more information or like to learn more about particular issues he's covering. So I thought it was really fascinating. I think it's a nice kind of base level book to look at some of these conversations we're all trying to have. And I appreciate it for that. So Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man by Emmanuel Acho. I saw this on a lot of fall preview lists, like like mm-hmm. books that people were psyched about that were coming up. 
So yeah, I'm glad that you talked about it because if you didn't, I probably would have. And I feel like, not to talk about covers again, but I really like the cover on that one. Yeah, it's really simple, but it's very striking. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's a good way to to describe it. Um, So my other new release pick for this week is, uh, it's actually a revised book. And it is How to Slowly Kill Yourself and Others in America, Essays by Kiese Lehman. Um, this originally came out in 2013. Kiese Lehman wrote the book Heavy, which is his memoir, which I think won a bunch of awards uh, the other mm-hmm. year. And so what happened with his previous, I think, two books, or at least the ones that he bought – He went back to his original publisher because, again, this came out 2013, and he was like, I want to buy back my books. And that publisher or editor or whatever sold them back to him for, he said, it cost him 10 times what they paid him for them, which uh, (laughs) is its whole own thing. Um, So this essay collection, uh, there are 13 essays. There are six that are new to this edition. So it's at least almost 50% a new book, but then also he talks a lot about revision and the importance of that, which is interesting because he also talks about that in Heavy. So I think that just this idea of revision as as kind of like a, a lifelong concept and applied like across one's life is is very key to him. And then it's really put into practice with this book. The essays move uh, from like Jackson, Mississippi, which is where he was born and where he grew up, to Oberlin, where he completed college, and then Indiana. He was awarded a fellowship in the creative writing program. And then in New York, he taught for 14 years at Vassar. It's basically like him in his writing career moving around and then uh, using the themes of race, identity, and justice. He also pays homage to the, uh, quote, weird women warriors who raised him, which is a phrase I really liked, which primarily include his grandmother and his mother, which I was also, oh gosh, I, I got to attend the Carnegie medals when he won for heavy and he brought his mother on stage with him and he gave her the award Aww. and just, yeah, everyone cried. And um, he just talked about how important she was to his writing and his life. And um, it's just nice to have, like, then, like, in this book, right, like, more specifically also being talking about her. So um, even if you've read this, I think that it's probably worth picking up again because, again, there's so much is revised, so much is new. Um, so and that is How to Slowly Kill Yourself and Others in America, Essays by Kiese Lehman. That's so great. I read Heavy and I remember like one of the things that struck me about it was how beautiful the writing was like because he's also a poet. And so like when poets write nonfiction, they just have these like perfect sentences embedded in a lot of their pieces. Did you notice the writing in this one like feeling particularly great? It was, I would say, very good. I haven't finished Heavy or at least I haven't looked at it in a couple years. So I'm like, is that what I thought of it? But I bet that you're – I meaning like comparatively, I, I would think that Heavy would be a little more – I, I keep wanting to say either advanced or complex, but I think I mean more like, you know, it's further on mm-hmm. in his writing career. Yeah. So I think it it's probably a little more um, fleshed out in that respect, but the writing is still very good. Cool. And that's, you know, that's what he's, well, one of the things that he's good at. So, and why he won so many awards for that. Yeah. Yeah. This one sounds really amazing. I had it on my list too, so I'm glad you talked about it. 
All right. Um, so my final pick for new books this week is one called Wintering, The Power of Rest and Retreat in Difficult Times by Catherine May. Uh, and this is a book that looks at the ways we can, quote, care and repair ourselves when life knocks us down. And so this is part a memoir about her kind of own experiences with the idea of wintering, but then also an exploration kind of through literature and mythology and nature to look at ideas about rest and retreat and hunkering down when the times are difficult. The book opens with May's husband facing a really serious illness, and then her son stops going to school, and then she starts to experience her own health and medical issues. And so all of these things happening in her life start uh, in like August and September of a year, makes her, forces her to take a leave of absence from her university job, which is pretty demanding, and just kind of hunker down and heal for a while. And so the book uh, is framed in like months, so there's an August, September, October, November. And so by October, she's and into November, she's starting to really like embrace the idea of just staying close to home and coziness, but also like retreat and all of those kinds of things. And so the book is kind of about how she endured this time and then also how she learned to embrace a time of just like doing nothing. Um, and so she looks both out, she looks at herself and her own family's experience, but then outward to all of these other things and the way that hibernation can be kind of a benefit to all of us. One of the quotes from the back of the book I really like is that May models an active acceptance of sadness and finds nourishment in deep retreat, joy in the hushed beauty of winter, and encouragement in understanding life as cyclical, not linear. And I think this one is really good, but I, I think the reason it struck me so much is because I started reading it in um, – late October when like in Minnesota, we had a bunch of snow on the ground and it's really early to have snow and it was very cold. And I was just feeling like angry about the winter coming. And I, normally I don't particularly enjoy the winter, but like this year I was feeling really just like anxious and upset about it for many reasons. And this book sort of helped me reframe my ideas a little bit and the idea that maybe it is okay to have a time where we hunker down and we look inward and we try to think like how do we approach this season and that we don't always have to be active like we can take seasons of withdrawal um and i i appreciated that perspective and i think it's going to be something nice to sort of frame going into this winter which i anticipate being more difficult perhaps than usual given that we're all going to be staying home a lot more than we <laughs> normally would so um i really liked that and i'm excited to kind of finish this one and just like use it as a reframe maybe for my own difficulties with this season so that is wintering the power of rest and retreat in difficult times by Catherine may i'm really interested in how like people on the prairie mm. in like the 1800s did winter right because like you can't farm so then you're just kind of sitting inside and how did they like what did they do yeah all my immediate thought is you know like whittle but <laughs> you can't do that all the time so there had to have been other stuff yeah kim and i kim and i had a weather fight last episode <laughs> i don't know if people remember because i was excited slash jealous about their <laughs> snow and she was very upset about it i will say that i have been to st paul in january and it is the i mean i've lived in chicago we're known for having pretty cold weather but st paul is the coldest weather i have ever experienced so I don't know that I, I get it sort of. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's uh, it, it is what it is. And I think just personally, like uh, trying to spend more time, like not wanting to be someplace where we're not and like being present in the place that we are and, and embracing the time and place where I am for what it is, is important. And that's what I think this book is about a little bit too. So that was why it was helpful for me. So 
All right, with that, we have our second sponsor for this week's episode. Uh, the sponsor is What Book. So What Book is a new social network built by readers for readers. They're making it easier than ever to share and discover great books with an easy-to-use app that mimics a social media experience, or as they call it, social media. We're all fed up with algorithms throwing products at us based on what we bought on a certain website. What Book is putting the human element back into books with word of mouth in your pocket. They're a young startup that wants to work with users to build the best experience to get people reading. So what book has book recommendations, book social networks, uh, finding your next book. You can save time, look at virtual bookshelves, and see what your friends read and recommend. So if you were trying to look for another social media app related to books, uh, that is what book. All right. And so uh, this week, we decided to take not a particularly timely theme and look at YA nonfiction again. We did YA and a YA nonfiction episode quite a while ago. And at the time, I think Alice subtitled it nonfiction for busy adults, uh, which I thought was very funny. And it made me think that this time when doing that YA nonfiction, we're looking at nonfiction for exhausted adults, because <laughs> that is what we all are. <laughs> That's real. Yes. Yeah, so YA nonfiction, nonfiction for exhausted adults. And so my first pick for uh, a YA nonfiction book is called The 57 Bus, A True Story of Two Teenagers and the Crime That Changed Their Lives by Dashka Slater. And I actually picked this one up because, Alice, you wrote an edition of the Four Real Newsletter where you talked about true crime as, like, gentle true crime as being kind of a, like, distracting way to get through the time right now. Um, And I was like, Uh yes, that sounds excellent. I wonder if YA true crime would be a good distraction for me. And this one is not particularly gentle, but it, it, it was very engrossing. So I still feel good about recommending it. So the book is about two teenagers who cross paths on the 57 bus, which is a bus that goes basically straight through Oakland, California, and goes through almost every like type of neighborhood. So it, it goes through these very affluent white areas, and then it goes through some not as affluent black and brown neighborhoods. Um, and so a lot of different people run into each other on this bus. And so uh, one of the teenagers, Sasha, is a queer white teenager who attends a small private high school. Uh, the other one is Richard, a straight black teenager who attends a large public high school. And so the inciting incident of this book is that on a drive home, Sasha is sitting in the back of the bus uh, wearing a white skirt. They fall asleep. And then Richard, who is on the bus with some friends, thinks that it would be kind of a funny prank almost to just sort of like light the skirt on fire, not thinking that it will do much damage. And it turns out it does. And the the skirt lights on fire and Sasha is severely burned. And Richard confesses he is caught and he confesses and then is charged with two hate crimes uh, as an adult and then is facing life in prison for this uh, incident on the bus, which is heartbreaking for all sorts of different reasons. So the book starts by giving kind of both of their backgrounds. For Sasha, there's a lot in the book talking about like queer identity and terminology and how Sasha came to their gender identity. And then on Richard's side, it talks a lot about growing up on a rough neighbor or in a rough neighborhood in Oakland, going to this public high school and what it takes for a teenager to like who it is in the system and who is having issues to try and turn their life around and what happens with that. And so then the book shifts to talk about what happened on the bus, the investigation, and then what happens after, and then how the case got international attention and changed both of their lives dramatically, even beyond like how they would have changed just because of the incident that happened. So I really like that it is, I think, a very empathetic book. It's trying to understand everybody who is involved and doesn't excuse what Richard did at all, but looks at his motivations and how the system approached, how the system treated him as a young black man and whether that resulted in a an outcome that was not as just as it could have been. And so I just think it's super interesting. It's very care- The author is very careful with terminology and context and framing. So I think it gives a really 
thoughtful look at this whole incident. And it also, from a like reader perspective, it has very short chapters. So it reads very quickly, which is satisfying when you're like looking for something to just like sink your brain into. So I think it was really great. It's it's a winner of the Stonewall Book Award. And it was a finalist for the ALSA Award for Excellence in Nonfiction for Young Adults and several other awards. So it's a great book. I highly recommend it. The 57 Bus, A True Story of Two Teenagers and the Crime That Changed Their Lives by Dashka Slater. Just like teenagers being tried as adults. Yeah. I will say overwhelmingly a bunch of garbage. Okay. My first pick is The Faithful Spy, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and the Plot to Kill Hitler by John Hendricks. When I saw this book at first, I did not realize it was mostly, well, okay, I'm going to say mostly illustrated, but that is misleading because there is a lot of text. But it definitely is a very um, illustration heavy slash leaning on the power of images mm. uh, for this book. So what this is about is it starts in like Dietrich Bonhoeffer being born, you know, like kind of tells his story growing up in this wealthy German family and being very interested in theology from an early stage and um, traveling around. So he went to Italy and um, saw how uh, the Catholic faith is different than the Lutheran faith there and how it's practiced. He really was interested in having a, like a communal um, experience with God and then um, going to New York to study at, I think, Union Theological Seminary and uh, meeting people there. One of his friends took him to a Baptist church in New York. And so then he saw how like, you know, that denomination um, celebrates uh, God there and basically just, you know, was inspired by all these ideas. So then he goes back and uh, to Germany and the National uh, Sozialistische Party or Nazi Party is gaining traction. So this this started post World War One, and the the book really makes this clear. And it is aimed at I would say older middle grade, younger young adult. Like mm -hmm. that's kind of the the tone, but it's also dealing with these very kind of heavier issues. But I don't think in a way that's too jarring. So, and it really lays out how you know like World War One um, sanctions against Germany made impoverished the country and um, kind of left it in this very vulnerable position for a very nationalistic, uh, I was gonna say heroic message, but mainly right being like Germany is like, it's people are heroes. And like, we have this great destiny and all of the stuff that that Hitler was saying. And it sort of plots the party's rise to power and how no one thought that that was possible. And it was all a joke. <laughs> um, and then Bonhoeffer's eventual work within like basically seeing biblical stories such as like david and goliath and seeing that as oh, i'm gonna pause because there are literally people shouting outside my window i heard that <laughs> okay great <laughs> why are they still doing it can you hear that yeah what is happening i have no idea i have a very limited view outside my window i think they're still shouting but i'm just Nope. <laughs> Do you hear that whistling? Yeah, I don't even know. <laughs> okay, I'm just going to carry on. So in the in the midst of, you know, everything happening, he, he is inspired by the story of David and Goliath and essentially uses that and other stories in the Bible as almost an imperative to like he has to do something about Hitler and the Nazi party. And he decides that um, Hitler should be killed. So this is, of course, you know, this this plot ends up failing, but um, 
I am so sorry to listeners. There are people literally shouting and whistling outside (laughs) my window, and I don't know why. It feels a little jarring in the midst of talking about, like, the World War II uh, horribleness. Anyway, so essentially, Bonhoeffer tells this whole story about Bonhoeffer and uh, his plot to kill Hitler, which is, again, the title of the book. So I really recommend it if you are either interested in learning more about this and don't want to get into like a really big biography of him. There are a few. Or if you have like a teenager or someone who's even like, I would say like 12 in your life, who you're like, it would be really helpful for them to understand how things like this can happen, because I think it does do a really good job of breaking that down. So again, that is The Faithful Spy, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and The Plot to Kill Hitler by John Hendricks. So I looked this one up on my phone while you were talking, because I wanted to see what the illustrations are like, and they are stunning. Yeah, they're really good. Like, what cool, like, they use red and blue and black and white, so they're very, like, yeah, they just look, it looks like a really beautiful book. And I I love that style too. Very cool. Excellent pick. All right. So uh, my second pick is uh, An Indigenous People's History of the United States for Young People by Jean Mendoza and Debbie Reese. Those are the two authors who adapted the adult version, which was by Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. And so I picked this one uh, in part because November is Native American Heritage Month, and I thought this would be a good call out for that. And also because I am very into this larger revisioning history series, uh, and this is an adaptation of one of those books specifically for young people. So revisioning history is from Beacon Press, and they've done, I think, five of them that all do histories of the United States from different perspectives. So there's a queer history of the United States, there's a black women's history of the United States, and there's a Latinx history of the United States. And so indigenous peoples is one of them. And so this book, The Young People's Adaptation, is targeted at grades uh, seven through nine. So it's an, uh, for me, like the big history books that I like to read, like that's about the grade level that works. So I appreciated it in that way. Um, The two people who did the adaptation, uh, Jean Mendoza is an activist in the international indigenous movement. uh, And Debbie Reese uh, founded the American Indians and Children's Literature Organization. And so both of them are very familiar with both children's literature and curriculum and also indigenous um, movements. So I think that they're perfect people to adapt this book as well. So um, the book kind of gives, like I said, an indigenous history of the United States, specifically like trying to uh, give a new frame on issues like the doctrine of discovery, uh, manifest destiny, uh, and the myth of the United States as a nation of immigrants. And then also tries to bring in and understand how stories about genocide of indigenous people have been left out of most history books. And so the book, it looks a little, I think, probably more textbook-like than um the adult version of the book, but it includes discussion topics, images, maps, recommendations for further reading, and um, kind of just goes into this whole indigenous history and targeting it at young people. And it is fascinating. There is, I mean, it's no surprise for me to say that there are so many things that I didn't know or weren't covered in history books the way that um, maybe in a, um, not in an untruthful way, but in a like fully realized way, um, or that gives kind of complication and nuance to the idea that perhaps Manifest Destiny is not, was unfair and was not perhaps a great thing for many people. Um, and so I appreciate having another angle to look at some of these historical concepts that I was taught in school, but didn't really think deeply about at the time. They also, there's some interesting stuff in the book talking about how history books are written and the ways in which they limit or frame the way we talk about some of these big kind of American historical values. And so the book is also doing a lot of work trying to teach readers to think critically and 
push them to be interested in learning more. So even if this is the only um, differently framed history book that kids, students might read, I think that it is encouraging them to kind of look for these stories in other areas where they might be taught. So I think that that's a really cool part of the way that they have approached the young people's adaptation as well. So that is An Indigenous People's History of the United States for Young People, which was originally the adult version is by Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, and this young people's version was adapted by Jean Mendoza and Debbie Reese. Um, and my wife texted me the reason that people are shouting and whistling in the streets of Chicago is that Biden has officially won the presidency. Ah, there we go. Yay. That's, uh, that's why. So, um, wow. (laughs) Okay, let's move on. Um, (sighs) what a thing to happen in the middle of a podcast. (laughs) So, (laughs) okay. (laughs) Everything's fine. The next book that I want to talk about is uh, The Borden Murders. This feels weird. Um, (laughs) This is perhaps our best transition of all time. Yeah. Um, Okay. Uh, The Borden Murders, Lizzie Borden and the Trial of the Century by Sarah Miller. Um, I'm just going to keep talking with people shouting in the background because that's amazing. (laughs) It was a school library journal, best book of the year. And uh, Sorry, people just keep shouting. And uh, essentially, so if you want a, again, sort of pared down, but not really that pared down, um, story of uh, Lizzie Borden and the murders that happened in Fall River, Massachusetts in 1892, then um, this is a pretty good pick. Uh, I was flipping through it. She goes through, in a really linear way, the events of what happened in the trial and really lays it out in a, in a way which is helpful because I think that so many random facts about the story get floated around that it's nice to have them all just like clearly laid out like this is what happened this is what was said if you are unfamiliar uh the story of lizzie borden is that in 1892 uh her father and her stepmother were found murdered in their home lizzie had been home at the time they seem to have been murdered with an axe and uh hence there's a famous rhyme about it And she has been assumed to be the murderer since basically 1892. Uh, She was not found guilty in a court. And it's been kind of just like a big mystery of like, did she, did she not? We're kind of thinking she did, but maybe something else happened. I don't know. So um, there's a lot of uh, photos and newspaper clippings. Just to be warned, there are photos of the the murder scene um, because they had that technology at the time. They're not like super clear, but just like if you do not want to share that kind of thing with either your children or with young people in your life, uh, just be wary of it. Um, So again, that is The Borden Murders, Lizzie Borden and the Trial of the Century by Sarah Miller. So you've read a lot of like Borden murder books, right? Yeah. How does this one compare to some of the others? Like, do you think if you are not a person who's very familiar, like this is a good one to pick up or would you recommend one of the adult ones instead? I mean, there was a really good one. That came out, I want to say this year. Was it this year or last year? Called The Trial of Lizzie Borden by Kara Robertson. That's probably like, if you're not a younger person, the number one thing that I would recommend. But again, if you don't want to spend like as much time on the subject or anything, then I think The Borden Murders is a good pick. Excellent. Thank you for that context. All right. So that wraps up some YA nonfiction or nonfiction for exhausted adults, which I feel like will be applicable for many months to come. 
And with that, we will wrap up the podcast as we normally do by talking about the books that we are reading uh, right now at this very moment. Um, So I'm actually kind of between books at the moment. I've been reading a ton of fiction. I think I looked back and I only read fiction in October, which is very unusual. Um, And I think I might continue on that path for a little bit longer just because it's been a nice it's just, an, it's they, they prove more distracting to me sometimes than nonfiction does. So the one I'm looking at picking up next is The Plague of Doves by Louise Erdrich, um, which is the next book chosen for um, Minnesota has a one book, one Minnesota statewide read that's organized by one of the friends groups of the St. Paul Public Library. And uh, this is the next book that they've chosen. So it's a novel about a long unsolved murder in a small North Dakota town and how years later, the consequences are still being felt by the community and a nearby Native American reservation. Um, and I love Louise Erdrich. Her books are just beautiful and they're so gripping and she walks this really great line between like literary fiction but also like a little bit genre-y because there's always just like some good like they're just they're gripping in a way that I don't always find literary fiction to be so I'm excited to grab this one uh so Plague of Dubs by Louise Erdrich and uh, I am currently going through some Agatha Christie because nice. I find her very calming right now. I just read Death on the Nile, and then right now I'm reading The Murder on the Links, which is a murder that happened at a golf course. <laughs> I wanted to go back and read her Poirot books in order because Death on the Nile is so good, um, at least from like a characterization, like psychological standpoint. I will say that this, because it's early, is like not as good. Like it's really clearly not as good. Um... And just, like, a lot simpler, and, like, you could tell she hadn't really, like, refined her style yet, mm-hmm. but maybe that's what I was looking for with the Kiesi Lehman book, refined his style. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's still good, you know what I mean? Like, you're yeah. still like, oh, it's Poirot, and he's fun, and, like, so I'm really liking it. With that, you can find us on social media. I am at It's Alice Time, and Kim is at Kim the Dork. And our amazing audio editing for this episode was done by the very patient Jen Zink. Thank you, Jen. And if you have a minute, we would love it if you would rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. That helps people find us more easily. And then while you're there, you can subscribe so you get new episodes the very minute that they come out. And so with that, I'm Kim Ukra. And I'm Alice Burton. And we thank you for listening to this week's episode of the For Real Podcast. <laughs>